In the kind of modern addiction to busyness, I think there's this kind of under the surface impulse or motivation uh, to not have to process things and to not have to look deeper into things. And if we can just keep our our tasks and our to-do lists um, properly stacked up, then we never actually have to pause. Mm -hmm. And we find that's kind of the first barrier of entry into any sort of, you know, quote unquote mindfulness practice is just this this initial fear or this initial kind of inertia of um, of making space for things to arise because it ultimately leads towards an experience of, of kind of powerlessness. Um, because when, if I've learned one thing over the my years of meditation, especially, it's that I am very much not in control of my mind. Um, and I've also learned that the quality of my mind is directly related to the quality of my, my life my existence, my day-to-day experience of contentment or or lack of contentment. And so that's kind of one of the big impulses for me that's kept me in this practice is um, I would like to be a better master of my mind. And what I've learned is that in order to do, in order to get closer to that, um, you have to have unscheduled time you have to have space for the things that you don't want to look at to arise and to meet them with some sort of courage and grace and also openness and humility that is jason bowman and this is the well mind podcast welcome to episode 21 of the podcast i'm your host dr ben coles The WellMind is a space for meaningful conversations about a broad range of wellness-related topics. So please join me in welcoming Jason Bowman to the podcast. Jason is a yoga teacher, a meditation practitioner, an avid cyclist, speaker, and writer. He, along with his brother and elite athlete Dylan Bowman, co-founded Pillars. Pillars takes a holistic approach to coaching running and endurance athletes by providing resources to support and promote physical fitness and emotional fitness. The Pillars app launched at the beginning of 2021. Jason speaks about the genesis of Pillars in our conversation and explains he and Dylan's goal of supporting athletes as they strive to reach their athletic potential while also providing tools for maintaining a healthy and balanced internal environment. This is also the jumping off point for a rich exploration of how to cultivate balance in life. Jason brings a contemplative and philosophical stance to our discussion as we unpack a deeper understanding and practice of balance. In our conversation, the topics range from athletic goals to the arts to relationships and even our own identity development. Jason is a fantastic guest, and I'm thrilled to share this conversation with you. So here is my chat with Jason Bowman, Redefining Balance. Jason, it's fantastic to have you on the WellMind podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show and, and being a guest. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I know we've uh, been chatting a bit uh, through email just about what we're going to discuss today um, and having a focus on cultivating balance in life as a, as a pathway to personal wellness, both emotionally, physically, relationally, those kind of things. Um, but before we dive into those topics, um, I really want the audience to get to know you a little bit here. Um, the way I was introduced to you, Jason, was through a podcast that I listened to. Uh, it's called The Pillars, and formerly it was called The Well, but it's your brother that's the primary host for that podcast. But he had an episode um, that was a lecture that you gave, essentially kind of a, a I think it was about 25, 30 minute talk on the topic that we're going to discuss today. And it just, it really struck me, um, the, the reflections that you had, the insights that you had, uh, something that I just wanted to uh, talk with you about, have a conversation about. So that was kind of my initial introduction. Um, but I know there's a lot more to the story for you. So, so tell me a little bit about yourself um, and, and kind of your involvement with this Pillars platform with your brother. Yeah. Um, well, my brother is a, is a total hero and a freak of nature and his uh, capacity to push himself in so many ways has always been a big inspiration to me. So yeah, I'm glad you listened to his podcast. It's so cool. Um, but yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm a man of leisure. <laughs> no, I, I'm a yoga teacher. Um, I'm also a writer. I'm currently getting an MFA in creative writing and writing a novel. Um, and that is also an incredible kind of application for these, these types of subjects and these things, uh, to which I've dedicated myself for so many years. And then, yeah, I've been a support system for my brother in the creation of this app, um, that is geared towards runners who are looking to increase their strength and endurance, but also their kind of, um, what we call emotional fitness as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's right on the kind of. The, I think that the pillars here are both physical fitness and emotional fitness. And it seems like uh, both of you are contributing to each of those pillars. It's not like one is one pillar and, and one is the other, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they support and, um, you know, make each other contextually relevant. I think, I think one without the other is, is, uh, an incomplete equation. And I guess that's, uh, the, the beginning of an entire conversation of balance in order to have a balance, you have to have two kind of seemingly opposite things. And, and both of our lives, we've found that, that the physical vitality and the mental poise and composure or endurance, if you will, Mm -hmm. are both the necessary ingredients to something that we could call like a, you know, fulfilled existence. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you're, you're, you're right. It sounds like there's more to the story there. So just tell me a little bit about some of those early conversations um, that you and Dylan were having to, to create something like this in, in the space of, you know, like coaching services, this actually feels kind of unique to me. Um, to, to have an equal value to both physical and emotional wellness in, in a platform like this. So where, where does this come from? 
Well, I think in the most general sense, it comes just from our, our brotherly relationship. He's a professional athlete. Um, and I've been watching him excel at that for our entire lives. And I, um, have never been athletic in kind of the traditional sense, at least like I cannot run and I certainly cannot do anything that requires like handling a a ball of sorts. Okay. Um, but I, you know, I, I am a super dedicated cyclist and totally, uh, obsessed with that and live in the Mm -hmm. Bay area where I can do that so much, which is a wonderful gift. But the thing that has been really interesting and we, my brother and I have a whole conversation this on, on his podcast from maybe a year, year and a half ago is that I, um, am also a longtime meditator and I've, uh, been dedicated to this Vipassana practice for oh, 11, 11 plus years now. And that requires a wholly different kind of endurance pursuit, which is sitting still and sitting quietly for 10 days. Wow. And, um, it, we kind of would just laugh about it in a familial way of like his, his desire to run hundred mile races and my desire to sit still without moving were of course <laughs> entirely opposite of each other, but we were both finding that we were getting at like similar truths and getting similar value out of what we were doing. So yeah, in the general sense, that's, that was kind of the, the impetus behind the project and, um, you know, like, like any creative endeavor, it's, it's changing and it's morphing and it's, uh, we're figuring out what it is that people are interested in, in, and what it is that we're interested in both as individuals and as, as brothers. But yeah, that was the idea. Very cool. Very cool. So I've got to ask a little bit more about this Vipassana meditation practice. Uh, I'm, I'm not personally familiar with it. So can you just kind of talk a little bit about what that is and and what it entails? Um, yeah, I mean, well, it's kind of, it's uh, it's a huge huge topic, of course. But I guess I could say there's there's many different you know quote unquote styles of meditation across many different wisdom traditions, and this is just one of those styles from a particular wisdom tradition, and it is. Uh, a retreat experience in which you dedicate 10 days to being totally silent and the days are very strictly regimented and you spend about 12 hours a day in seated meditation practice and are instructed in a kind of piecemeal way how to undertake this practice uh, hour by hour, day by day. And um, yeah, there's there's a whole bedrock of kind of philosophical um pondering and philosophical support that underlies the practice, but ultimately it's just sitting with yourself. It's putting yourself in a, in a place where you have no other distractions, um, nothing to run to, to kind of uh, apply some sort of balm or some sort of avoidance. Mm -hmm. And you're left with really nothing to do, but, um, you know, reckon with your mind and see what comes up when you have no distractions to turn to. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff. And, and I think you're, I appreciate what you said about there being lots of uh, different wisdom traditions that speak to meditation. And this is, this is one practice, but it, um, that idea of meditation um, is something familiar to me from a mental health standpoint as well, because it's, a, it's one of the pathways to, to walk towards uh, mindfulness, 
um, and mindfulness being incredibly important to being able to sort through our emotional experiences, our the the flood of cognitive ideas, thoughts that can enter into our mind, and then and then being able to move in a direction with intention, right? All of that mindfulness, but oftentimes it uh, starts with being able to pause, right? And uh, so, the, obviously. 10 days, 12 days, or 12 hours a day, that's, that's an extended pause um, that, that takes a great deal of uh, commitment, I'm sure, to the practitioner. Um, but is, is meditation something, I guess, when, when you're thinking about the, the pillars platform and, and incorporating physical and emotional fitness, where does meditation enter in or how does it enter into uh, that aspect? Um, I guess I would, the simple answer is that it doesn't explicitly. Um, I'm not a meditation teacher. Um, and I have an understanding of, of my own personal practice and my own personal application of things that I've spent a long time studying and practicing, but yeah, I don't teach meditation. Um, the, the discourses or the lectures that you've heard in the app are certainly, certainly come from some of that kind of, uh, you know, genre of practice and study, but certainly have also come from my many years of, of teaching yoga mm -hmm. and also just my understanding of, of literature and the arts. Yeah. So um, it's not the Pillars is not a meditation app by any you know, stretch of the imagination, but there is this kind of dynamic of peeling back the layers a little bit to see what's going on behind just pure physicality of existence. Yeah. And yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned this kind of uh, this processing of what, what comes up emotionally and what comes up in your thoughts. And, and I think that's one of the things that, um, is just so simple and hard to overstate in importance. And it's something that is very easy not to do. And in fact, I think it's something that we very much subconsciously avoid doing in the kind of modern addiction to busyness. I think there's this kind of under the surface impulse or motivation uh, to not have to process things and to not have to look deeper into things. And if we can just keep our, our tasks and our to-do lists um, properly stacked up, then we never mm -hmm. actually have to pause. Mm -hmm. And we find that's kind of the first barrier of entry into any sort of, you know, quote unquote, mindfulness practice is just this, this initial fear or this initial kind of inertia of, um, of making space for things to arise because it ultimately leads towards an experience of, of kind of powerlessness. Um, because when, if I've learned one thing over the, my years of meditation, especially it's that I am very much not in control of my mind. Um, and I've also learned that the quality of my mind is directly related to the quality of my, my life my existence, my day-to-day -day experience of contentment or, or lack of contentment. And so that's kind of one of the big impulses for me that's kept me in this practice is um, I would like to be a better master of my mind. And what I've learned is that in order to, do, in order to get closer to that, um, you have to have unscheduled time. You have to have space for the things that you don't want to look at 
to arise and to meet them with some sort of courage and grace and also openness and humility. So there's a lot to unpack in that, <laughs> in that um, which I love. And this is, this is exactly why the conversational aspect of this is so good because, because there, the two things that I heard that I want to follow up on, one is how balance often gets defined in, I think, socially for us as what you said, stacking up all the tasks in the proper order and getting things done. And, and so that I'm kind of giving my time to all these different roles and responsibilities and commitments. And I'm just kind of moving from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And that when I do that perfectly, when I do that well, and I get it all done and uh, that that's balance, but that's um, very different from the balance that you're talking about of engagement in life and then stepping back from that and creating space for more of this, you know, like unscheduled or unstructured time for things to just arise. And then the other part that I want to follow up is like, what's actually happening when you do create that space? Like, how do you, how do you have grace? Um, how do you have um, an appreciation or um, an acknowledgement for things that, that do come up that maybe are uncomfortable um, or, or downright scary? So can we start with that kind of first piece of like redefining balance, really? Like, I think in, in one of the lectures, the, one of them that specifically I listened to, um, you had this analogy of a swing set when it comes to mm. balance. Could, mm -hmm. you, um, could you kind of relate that um, kind of metaphor as a kind of a starting point for us? Yeah, well, the, the so there's a there's a definition of yoga in kind of the seminal classical text uh, called the Yoga Sutra, um, which is a contemporary text or contemporary time to uh, like the historical Christ, maybe two thousand twenty five hundred years ago, and this text was uh, laying out the internal practice, the practice as it relates to to cognition. Um, and the definition of yoga that is given in that text is yoga chitavritti nirodha in Sanskrit, which means yoga is the suspension of the movements of the mind. Very, very simple definition. Okay. But the word uh, that I pulled out of there for that one analogy you mentioned is called nirodha, and that means to suspend. And I was just riding a swing set one time and just had this, you know, kind of clear and also comical moment of of feeling myself at that that pinnacle of the, the arc of the swing set uh, in between going up and coming down where I just had that, this moment of well suspension of weightlessness and something like an omniscient view and uh, timelessness and also thoughtlessness. And, and we can all kind of access that point, I think in, in our imagination or in our memory. And yeah, so I just, I like to use that as the, a very real world and, and visceral analogy of what is, what is meant by this idea of suspension. And it, it, it harkens back to this idea of balance, of course, in the sense that it, it has, it's in between two things. It's in between going up and coming down. And I also find it to be a, a worthy analogy for the, for the fact that it is not a permanent state. 
Um, and when you're on a swing set, you can enjoy this moment of suspension for that split second of time. But of course, what happens both before and after that is, is movement and flux. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so then it becomes, um, not a state of being, you know, where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm in balance and, and everything is in its proper place and position externally, internally, but it's, um, what you're talking about are kind of pursuing these moments of balance, these experiences of balance. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's again, kind of, um, reflecting back on what you were saying just about these pillars of physical fitness and emotional fitness, that these kind of seemingly two opposite things, when we are able to bring those kind of walk those closer together and have a value for both of them, we're able to cultivate some of those moments of balance. Um, just right. Like, and, and to go back to kind of how we entered into just this point too, you were saying something about the ability to, um, you know, both exert effort and also step back at the same time. And that is, um, yeah, I agree with you in saying that the, we, we have this uh, cultural misidentification of balance as like the proper collation of your to-do list and the ability to go through that list with efficiency. And that's like what it means to have a balanced life. And even, you know, in, in a work life balance, we hear so much of, and certainly there's, there's a whole, a whole benefit to, to succeeding in those sorts of ways. But yeah, that is, that is the 50% of the equation where the other 50% of the equation is, is, you know, disengagement is maybe a problematic term because it has its own connotations or whatever, sure. but yeah, stepping back yeah. and, and taking this kind of passive, um, this passive stance. And I guess, you know, now that I think about it, the swing set requires that same thing too, because you have to get on the swing and that's active and you have to kind of pump mm -hmm. to get the momentum. You have to use energy to build this thing, but then eventually you, you also have to, you know, stop doing that and you have to let the momentum that you've created take you. Mm -hmm. And that is as an artist, that is what I think about all the time in the creation of, of, anything beautiful or anything worthy or worthwhile to others um, is you have to do both of these things equally. You have to try your very hardest. You have to understand technique and mechanics and history and how other people previously have undertaken certain tasks that you're currently undertaking. Um, and you really have to try tirelessly, but any piece of art blossoms in the moment where you, where you let go of the technique, where you release your grip over how the created thing is supposed to be received by others. And so a big part of this, this kind of umbrella of balance has to include passivity and again, I think that the passivity is one of the things that we're most scared of because it's vacuous and yeah. we don't have control over what fills that vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. That word control has a tremendous amount of power. Um, yeah. Certainly wanting uh, or, or establishing a goal or an objective Um you know, you're going to, you're going to exert or exercise, um, you know, some influence over what that outcome will be 
because that, that's saying I'm, I'm working towards that. That's my goal. And so I'm going to do these things with the intent of it leading to that goal. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to make this very like kind of tangible. And so I'm thinking again, just about any athletic pursuit, you know, whether it be yoga or running, um, at some point you can try too hard, right? Mm. Like if I'm out for a run and I start, you know, I'm trying to keep a certain pace um, and I start straining, inevitably I, I fatigue even faster. And, and that, that extra effort starts working against me. Is there something similar that can happen in yoga to that? Oh yeah, certainly. This is at the, this is at the root of the philosophy of the practice is um, the, the way that I speak to it specifically in yoga or as a yoga teacher in yoga classes, this, this idea of unclenching around your effort. Um, and it's an, it's a nervous system kind of practice, I think, because what happens is you start to learn to differentiate between, between, you know, the sincerity of a physical effort with this undue clenching that happens in something besides muscle, mm. uh, like your mind or your nervous system or your expectations for how far you've come or where you should be or shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's, um, yeah. So I focus on that a lot as a yoga teacher in class is just constantly reminding people like, yeah, you have to try hard here. Like pay attention. Don't move your eyes, do this with your knee, do this with your ribs, do this with your shoulders, etc. And also once you get to that place now, relax a little bit and not muscularly, like stay muscularly vital, but find this other thing that's a lot harder to pinpoint and certainly a lot harder to talk about and let that, um, decalcify a little bit. Um, and it takes years, years and years and years of practice to do that. But we also find it in, in every endeavor. It's not just a, it's not just a meditation thing and it's certainly not just an athletic thing, but we find the, the forcefulness or the control on anything that we do eventually comes to, to strangle that thing. And, you know, I'm actually just thinking, I, I shared this Aldous Huxley quote in that uh, podcast episode. Oh, yeah. Do you have And that? I'll just, I have that right here and I'd I'll read it again because it, yeah. I, I just happened to come across this right as I was thinking about this. So it's, uh, here's a short paragraph, but he says, um, take the piano teacher. He always says, relax, relax. But how can you relax while your fingers are rushing over the keys, yet they have to relax? The singing teacher and the golf pro say exactly the same thing. And in the realm of spiritual exercises, we find that the person who teaches mental prayer does too. We have somehow to combine relaxation with activity. The personal conscious self being a kind of small island in the midst of an enormous area of consciousness. What has to be relaxed is the personal self, the self that tries too hard, that thinks it knows what is what, that uses language. This has to be relaxed in order that the, uh, in order for the multiple powers at work within the deeper and wider self may come through and function as they should. In all psychophysical skills, we have this curious fact of the law of reversed effort. The harder we try, the worse we do the thing. 
and that's the end of the quote. But there's there's a very um, the problem with this is that it's also as much as it's difficult to remember that effort isn't everything. It's also difficult to remember that you can't stop efforting before you put forth enough practice. Like the piano teacher is really, the piano thing is a really great analogy, I think, because Mm -hmm. if in order to, to play an instrument in a way that someone wants to be around, um, you have to really have thousands of hours of effort of, of extreme practice and an understanding of technique and mechanics. And that's, that is irreplaceable, but we get, we get stuck in that position and that's, you know, what could be called religious fundamentalism because you never actually get off the page. Mm -hmm. You're only doing what you're told and you are, are pathologically literal. And so we get stuck there. But then, of course, on the other end of the spectrum, if you just go and sit down at the piano and you're like, oh, technique doesn't matter. And the more I effort, the worse I am. And you just go sit there and hammer away like you're not, of course, playing music. You're just, you know, entertaining yourself in a way that is not super enjoyable to be around for others. So there's this and this is where the balance of it comes in is because you have to have it's the same for an actor, right? They have to learn this technique inside and out, but it's only when they let the technique rest that they deliver uh, a performance that they step into an experience that is open-ended enough that can invite another person into the same experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I love, I love that quote. Thank you for having that available to us today. That that's fantastic. And, and kind of expanding on this too. Um, I, I don't remember where I heard this. Um, this is not mine. But it's something that I end up saying to myself um, in many different tasks. And it's um, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So in order to get fast or get good at something, you have to start slowly. Um, and and the, the, I think for me and for, for many folks that I've visited with. It's like, I want the thing now. I I want the outcome now. I want to feel better now. I want my relationship to be better now. I want to have work be better now. Um, but, But we have to start with a gradual practice in any of these areas uh, of, of kind of slowly moving into that. Um, so, so when you are, whether it's through coaching or whether it's through teaching and instructing with yoga and, and somebody's just like, I want to, I want to do it now, you know, like the, the now kind of how, how do you invite them into that space to, to slow things down, to, to put in that effort in a, maybe a more strategic way. So it's not like full gas right away, but okay, let's, let's start here. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a, it's a complicated one to answer because I mean, I'll take it just specifically as a yoga teacher. Sure. Um, Absolutely. 
the and I also teach a lot of yoga teachers how to teach. And one of the starting points for that is there's this other pair of opposites in yoga um, that is very much akin to the one we we talked about in terms of both effort and ease, or I'm uh, effort and letting go. And the Sanskrit words are stita and sukha. And stita means uh, steady, and sukha means um, open, okay. soft, easy, yeah. smooth, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I and I bring that up because my method for one person is going to be different for my method for another person because most people tend to either fall into one or the other of these we'll call them genres okay <laughs> or yeah. or attitudes right so yeah. say someone wants to do a handstand um and that's what they're coming to me for and that I really want to do the handstand now some people are going to come to me in the the stita way like it's a very type a oriented um achievement based attitude. Mm-hmm. And because I know that as a teacher, I'm here to kind of bring in the contrast or the or the other end of the pair of opposites, it's nice to remind them to be more sukha, to be more open, to be softer, to be more patient, to let go of their need to do a handstand. And, you know, the cliche, of course, is the prize is in the process, mm-hmm. right? So to, to come at it that way. On the other hand, though, there are people that will come with the very same goal of I want to do a handstand, but they're, they're very, you know, complacent is a strong word, but they're maybe like a little lazier about it. Like they're not, they're not practicing, sure. like they don't have the arm strength, they don't have the shoulder mobility, they don't have the core integration, et cetera. And I can see that there's this kind of um, wistful, fanciful idea of doing a handstand without actually putting forth any effort to actually do it. Mm-hmm. So in relation to that person, I might be a little bit more direct and a little bit more stern and be like, okay, like go hold plank for 50 breaths. And then, and, and be, you know, a hard teacher to that person because they're not necessarily providing that end of the spectrum for themselves. So yeah, it's, it's not a straightforward answer, but it depends on what I see in relationship. And Mm -hmm. if someone's really beating themselves up already, then I tend to try to be soft. If I find that someone's being a little bit lazy or a little bit sleepy, I tend to be, you know, a little bit more of an ass. (laughs) Well said. Well said. And I'm sure um, the pendulum swings back and forth for, for all of us. It, it, um, from a therapeutic perspective or, or uh, counseling, um, there, there's these two things that can happen and they, they often happen you know, in, in each of us um, where we have these unrelenting standards that we're kind of driving toward um, and it's, it is that uh, now, now, you know, get everything done, that, that kind of attitude. But lurking in the shadows of that is uh, despair. And it's like, because I'm, I'm only as good as the next thing that I do. Um, and, and there's a, a, a sense that if I stop or if I pause, that despair is going to catch up with me. Uh, but inevitably for, for everyone, it, it does at some point because we can't, we can't be perfect. We can't continue. And, and eventually we careen into, you know, if you want to call it burnout or compassion fatigue or exhaustion um, or depression, you know, these are all terms that we use for, it's like, I've, I've reached that point where I, I can't do anymore. And, and now I feel like, well, it, 
doesn't even matter what I do. Um, and that's, that's that kind of despair piece. So I appreciate that, you know, you're taking that measured approach to understanding where people are at in, in terms of that pendulum swinging, or maybe what their just general personality type is like, and trying to be that counterbalance for it, right. To, to, um, show them something different. And oftentimes that's, yeah, what happens in therapy too is, you know, if somebody is pushing, 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 it's like, okay, how do we create space for mindfulness? How do we actually relax? And, and then there are those that it's like, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. And so you're trying to um, cultivate a sense of motivation or desire, um, tapping back into the idea of setting a goal for myself. Um, and so, so yeah, I think we all have our personal preferences, but yeah. And I think there's, there's something important about also, yeah, I totally agree. And I think there's also something important about differentiating between, you know, despair and sadness. Mm. And I think in terms of these pairs of opposites or things to balance, um, we hear a lot of a lot about just the practice of releasing judgment, um, both towards ourselves and others, and that's super important. But as you know, coming from this world, that's only, of course, also half of the equation. And judgment is actually a very important thing. And none of us would want to live in a society that was empty of judgment. It is our judgments, and of course, there's synonyms for the word that you can put in at your, at you know, however you wish. Sure. But we we hold each other to certain ideals, and we hold each other accountable to harmony through our judgments of each other. And also, it's important to to be able to have the courage to reckon with yourself and to judge yourself, and to at the end of the day, kind of look back and be like, oh, I could have done that better. And what gets lost in this this um, this touting of non-judgment or of of constantly seeking this this uh, you know bliss or this happiness or whatever is that we actually miss out on really important opportunities for for self-honesty, which lead towards growth. And of course, we all know how that leads into its own doom spiral or despair spiral when that's the only thing that's focused on. It doesn't work. But that yeah. doesn't mean we're, and at least in my opinion, it doesn't mean that's something that we're supposed to let go of. And I know for myself, I've, I usually get more out of holding myself accountable than I do out of finding self-acceptance. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And and maybe that wasn't even the, now when I hear it like that, it sounds a little bit improperly weighted, but I guess I get e an equal amount of, <laughs> of benefit out of both of those things. And I find that to be important. And when, when sadness arises, it need not be something that needs to be explained away or even to, to do away with in any way, shape or form. Sadness is a beautiful state. Mm -hmm. And when it's, seen as something that you're supposed to rush through, that's what leads to this despair when everything is futile and nothing matters. Yeah. Um, you, you've, um, you talked about this uh, like happiness, bliss kind of concept. And, and culturally, I think we're kind of driven to maximize pleasure, right? And be comfortable and have the nice things. And, um, and so there's this kind of aversion to suffering or to sadness or to pain. Um, could you talk a little bit 
you know, kind of unpack that with me a little bit in, in terms of um, being okay with experiencing some suffering or sadness and recognizing that as a, maybe something that's worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, it's such an important topic and it's one that I've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about it and talking about it and practicing. And I, and I come at it both from the lens of as being an artist and as the lens of being a yoga teacher. And there's some interesting overlap and there's some interesting difference in that. But I guess as an artist, I think one of the most beautiful gifts that we can give each other or one of the highest purposes of art is to simply show people that it's worth it to suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, having the courage or the grace in order to say yes to suffering is what leads to almost all beauty in the world. And it is the way that we connect with each other. It's the way that we empathize with each other. There is no empathy and there is no connection without suffering. And suffering is a given. It is the, it is the one fundamental well, which comes from change and uncertainty, right? And change and uncertainty are the sources of suffering. Oftentimes. And those things are not going anywhere. And the, the life that is motivated by looking away from those things is a life that is, will constantly be avoidant and, and uh, shallow. Mm-hmm. And so as an artist, I think, and as an appreciator of art, I find so much meaning and so much inspiration in... Um, demonstrations of people who have the ability to say yes to suffering, knowing that it leads to all of these beautiful things, but not doing it because it leads to anything per se, but just because that's what's currently happening. Now, as a yoga teacher, it's a little bit more of a complicated thing, and it's something that has created a lot of friction um, in me as a professional. And that is this, because it, societally or culturally or in the subculture of yoga, there is a huge overemphasis placed on this kind of follow your bliss thing, which is very in vogue and has been for some time. And, and the practice is all about just doing what makes you feel good. And as far as I know, the practice, that is totally not what it's meant to do. Uh, the, the yoga practice is not meant to inspire bliss. The yoga practice is literally there to teach you how to suffer. Mm. And, and of course, when you learn how to suffer gracefully, you experience things that could be called bliss for sure, but it's a way different thing. Uh, You know, bliss for the sake of bliss is a very low hanging fruit, um, when related to the happiness or the freedom that comes when you learn how to love suffering. But of course, the thing that makes it so complicated is that you know, if I was to open a yoga studio and I was going to call it, you know, follow your bliss yoga, I would get a lot more people in the door than if I called it, you know, learn how to suffer yeah. yoga. Yeah. And because of this kind of need to bring people in, we tend to look for these shiny things, but it's a, it's a huge problem. And especially with meditation practice too, there's all these promises of deliverance and freedom and happiness and you're going to figure it out and you're going to have this blissful experience and that blissful experience, et cetera. And, you know, I I don't know how much time you've spent sitting cross-legged on the floor, your listeners as well, but you know, bliss is not something that happens very quickly at all when you go to sit cross-legged or sit in however you want with your eyes closed or whatever without moving. Bliss is not something that is immediate, but yet we're telling people like, oh, if you download this meditation app or if you go on this meditation retreat, 
you're going to have this bliss. And then you get there and that's not the first thing that happens or the 10th thing that happens or the thousandth thing that happens, then automatically you feel like a failure. So that's, that's my kind of two pronged entry into this, the particular part of the conversation is that those, those attitudes or those phenomenon need each other, just like anything else in these pairs of opposites that we find. Yeah. Yeah. So I think about, um, I think about relationships. Um, I've, I've done a fair amount of relational counseling and marriage therapy over the years as well. And, um, one of, one of the interesting words that inevitably comes up, um, from a relational standpoint, uh, is passion. Uh, people want passion in their relationship. Um, and, and that in many ways has been defined as, um, like excitement and, um, love and joy and, um, anticipation and these kind of things. But there's a, there's a facet to passion, um, that involves suffering. And, uh, I don't, I don't know if that's a, a familiar concept, but, you know, we, we just got through Easter and, uh, and within the Christian church, we're talking about the passion of the Christ, right. And his suffering on the cross and his, his, uh, death, like this idea we, and we call it the passion. Um, it's even a movie <laughs> called that. Um, and it, but it really brings to, to bear that, um, relationship. Um, when we think about that from a, a standpoint of passion is not just about excitement, and fun and joy, but there, there can be a sense of suffering within that as you try and uh, weave who you are as a person together with who someone else is as a person. And that's a, that's a constant, um, constant endeavor and practice in, in any long-term relationship, because at some point there's going to be a rub. There's going to be something where we don't, we don't just match up in harmony. Um, but in working through that suffering, experiencing that, acknowledging it, like you've said, there can be growth that comes out of that, a deepening that comes out of that, a greater appreciation for one another that, that comes out of that. But it can't be avoided. It needs to be directly right, addressed. Yeah. And also, I'll just add to that, that the, the, the high, I mean, this is such a trite thing to say, and it's so obvious, but the highs don't come without the lows. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're seeking this, some sort of passion in the positive sense, you also have to be very mindful or aware of the fact that in doing so, you're also inviting its opposite in. And there's different ways to think about that. And I'm not a, you know, uh, a relationship therapist and that whole aspect of existence has historically been quite confusing to me. Um, but I do know that there, there are different ways to think about it. And some people really find a lot of meaning in a very even keeled or, you know, what might even be seen as a boring kind of evenness. Mm -hmm. Um, and some people in that type of relationship feel totally suffocated and lifeless and they need a little bit more of these ups and downs and, and these, these, you know, again, drama is a, is a hard word, but yeah, there, there are certain dramas that we invite into our lives simply for the reminder that we're alive Mm -hmm. and it's important to, to be 
cognizant or to participate in the act of inviting the drama in and knowing that you're doing it at least so that you're not so surprised when the thing that you're seeking of passion is accompanied by this thing, this other thing that you're experiencing of, of disconnection or disharmony or depression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also there's something to be said about the fact that of course, um, you know, in relationships, sometimes in my experience, the thing that is, is detrimental is, is needing your partner to check all these certain boxes. You know, we want to, we want someone to be passionate with, but we also want someone to take care of us. We want a chauffeur. We want a masseuse. We want a, a parent. We want a, a music critic. We want all of these different things. And it's important or has been important for me to remember uh, relationally and not only romantically, but in friend relationships and Absolutely. family relationships yeah. that there's that, that people serve um, that people offer different things in different ways. And it's always uh, unsustainable to expect one person of any type of relationship to fill all these different things. And it's, you can get passion in any number of ways, even just in your own personal relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And use that word expectation. I think that's really at the core, at the root of it. It's like, what, what are we putting on that other person? Um, and how fair is that? How, 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 um, realistic is it? All of these things. Nobody can be all things to, um, one person for sure. So that, that's, uh, an important thing to, uh, kind of temper your expectations and understand oh, this is a real person, you know, with real, uh, shortcomings and, uh, and strengths. And so that again, learning to appreciate one another, learning to appreciate, not just where you match up and are in harmony with one another to, but to appreciate and value those differences as well, um, is a way of bringing that balance into the relationship. Yeah. Beautiful. Very important. So can we transition just a little bit, kind of one more area of balance that I wanted to make sure we touched on, and that's uh, this idea of empathy and boundary. And this, this comes into relationship, but I, you know, I was thinking about it as a, as a counselor and as an educator of counselors. One of the things that is um, it's just a, a, a critically important topic when you're working in a helping profession is that you figure out how to connect with others through empathy, establish that rapport, create a safe space um, so that people can, can do that work, um, but not at the expense of kind of losing yourself, right? Where we just kind of become this um, open vessel and we just take in everything that we're getting from a client or a patient or whatever. Um, but then... So, so that's, you know, empathy is the pathway towards creating those connections, but boundary is a way to protect ourselves so that we don't be, we, we aren't completely consumed by that. And I think you, I can't remember exactly how you put it um, in terms of empathy and boundary, but I just want to spend a little time talking about that today too. Yeah. Well, I think it also, of course, like all these things are so, um, you know, metaphorically similar, they echo each other. And it's the same thing of that we started with of talking about learning how to engage and step back at the same time. Um, 
And yeah, in, in just that simple way, you have to do that with people and especially yeah. people that need your support or to whom you're offering your support um, to engage and to step back in equal measure is, is important for the health of both people. Um, and I'm not trained as a, as a therapist. Um, and I mean, I've done certainly therapy and I understand the, the, what must be just critical importance as a therapist of having the boundary so as to not take on the, the suffering of others. But this is also a very Buddhist concept um, and the way that it's, that it's thought about in that world is um, you have to be equanimous, even in your giving of compassion. Um, and it's, it's hard to do that. And that's a pair of opposites. And if you're only compassionate, then you lose, but if you're only equanimous, then you also lose and that, and it's in that the the meeting point between those two things that you find that kind of suspension or that 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 freedom that is propped up in the space between. But another aspect that is that comes directly from that the kind of Buddhist or yogic way of thinking about things is that the more so one of the goals of the practice is to uh, increase your your sphere of selfhood. Uh, it is to see yourself in others is is the way that it's said, but it in a in a more you know maybe in a less cliche way. It's simply to expand your ability to identify with things besides whatever it is that exists right behind your eyes, mm -hmm. um, and that means other people, but it also means you know, organizations and it means animals and it means, um, your belongings and it means everything around you. The more, the more you practice, the more you increase this kind of proprioception, um, and proprioception starts in the yoga practice as simply learning how your arms and your legs relate to your core and to, you know, understand how your spine is, your neck is your skull and to feel how your toes are actually connected to your fingers, et cetera. And it's this really beautiful and simple way of taking ownership of yourself and to tie yourself together. Um, and it's what happens in all of us when we're young. It's what it's when you see a child hold their head up for the first time, that's a proprioceptive light bulb going off. It's them learning about their, their physical form and how it relates um, to space. And I guess it takes a little bit of poetic license to come with me on this next step, but I definitely maintain that as you learn about how your arms connect to your spine, you're implicitly training yourself to learn about how you relate to your larger communities. And while the proprioception is technically just kind of a physical thing of learning about your body in the room, there's definitely an aspect that comes underneath the surface kind of covertly almost that the more you, the more you come to know yourself, the more you find a homecoming within yourself, the more you set yourself up to find a homecoming in the world. And the way that that, you know, tangibly has consequence is that it's, um, it's harder to be selfish and it doesn't mean you're not selfish. And there's a hundred people in my life that would definitely perk up and be like, Whoa, buddy. And, <laughs> but there it's, it, it's harder to let yourself get away with things that you would have normally got let yourself get away with previously. 
And um, yeah, so the, the practice itself is, in, is increasing your sphere of self to include more things. And I'm rambling at this point, but when you do that, it's harder and harder to take care of your actual self because now you're having to balance this idea of the self that exists outside of you with the self that is actually yourself. Yeah. And that creates uh, friction and that creates difficulty and it creates a, a new invitation for, for balancing the inside and the outside. Yeah. And I look at things always from a, from a developmental perspective. And, uh, you know, I think as we move through childhood and adolescence, we're, we're taking in a lot of information and feedback from other sources, whether that be parents or siblings or teachers or coaches. And, and we're taking all of that in. And in many ways that becomes kind of some adopted identity, right? So we're, we're, we're growing, we're learning about who we are based on who, how other people see us and who other people see us to be. Um, but then at some point in adolescence and, and young adulthood, eventually that turns and we, we start also thinking about, well, who do I want to be? Who, who am I? And that's that internal piece. Um, and so there's this kind of back and forth that happens that I want to be um, valued, liked, appreciated externally, but I also want to um, develop a sense of integrity to to who I am and, and identify what my values are and what my goals are. And, and think again, if that, that idea of this pendulum kind of swinging back and forth, you know, we can't um, necessarily judge a person based on just where they are in a single moment in that swing of the pendulum of like figuring out my internal identity versus figuring out, yeah, where, where I fit in the world and how the world sees me. But I think over time and with uh, practice and intent, we begin, the, the pendulum doesn't swing quite as far, right? And, and, but it's, it's always gonna be swinging. We're always cognizant of like, oh, well, what does that person think of me? And, and you know, I've, I've, uh, I've now put this out on social media and you know, how is that gonna be received, right? Um, versus, well, this is really important to me. So I want to, I want to speak to my experience or, or about something that I'm feeling or thinking. Right. And so this, this idea, um, I guess I would just approach it, like I said, from that developmental perspective of being able to have empathy for yourself, grace for yourself, as you're kind of figuring these things out. Yeah. And especially that, that one you just met, like that's another pair of opposites is, is the impulse to be yourself and as contrasted with the impulse to fit in. And I wouldn't uh, ever do away with either of those two things. I think it's important to want to do both and to do things that help you to do both. Um, and oftentimes it takes the kind of, it takes a little bit of um, pushing past what you might call the intuitive in order to get to the success of that. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation of kind of misidentifying that, which is intuitive for that, which you're just simply afraid of, of, or taking the easy way around something that might have more benefit. But yeah, that's also, that's, that's a huge part of, of art too, is um, making something that is entirely yours um, which happens almost all the time in complete solitude. 
and then taking this thing that is constructed in complete solitude and putting it out into a, a community and having to let go um, to the degree that you're that you have to be okay with how it's received. And while you may or will want to be noticed and given accolades and recognition, um, those things themselves cannot be the end yeah. of the creative uh, process. Yep. Or the source of who you are either. Right. Yeah. But also like there's, there's, it's perfectly fine to want that. Mm-hmm. Like it's, 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 uh, I think that's another thing that kind of gets a little bit of an overblown bad reputation is like it, it wanting to be recognized for what you do. Like that's, that's fine. That's not something that I don't, I mean, personally, I don't think that's something that needs to be worked through. I think it's something that can be used as an inspiration of like, yeah, I, I want to create something that is beautiful, that creates uh, meaning in other people's lives. And I would, and and selfishly, I would like that to be reflected back upon me as being a, a contributing member of society. And I think that's a, that for me at least is a perfectly healthy attitude. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So we should land this plane here, Jason. Um, yeah. I got a couple of questions um, for you here. So if, uh, if people are wanting to kind of dive into this, this idea of balance, suspension, some of the topics that we've talked about, what would be some, some resources that, that you would direct them to as, as kind of starting points or, or, or continuing the discussion that you and I are having today? Yeah. I mean, your local, your local uh, yoga studio is a good place to start and there's a million different types of yoga and it's uh some are very sacred and some are very secular and there's a a huge spectrum of things. So, um, you know, which is to say you can always find something that speaks to what you're looking for. And that's, um, the, a huge axiom of the practice of yoga is that the way that you actually come to understand philosophies is in, is in your own physicality. So it's, it's, I would recommend that over reading any yoga book, yeah. Um, and similarly, like go go find someone who's who's teaching mindfulness or meditation or or sitting. You know, just sit sit still, mm-hmm. and that's an incredible way to come to a, a very intimate understanding of your own your own pendulum. Um, and then for me, it it all becomes real, as I've said already, in art and in literature. And I think the the best self help books are are good novels and good short stories and good poems. Mm. And I mean, I just read this this beautiful short story called uh, Switzerland by Nicole Krauss, who's a beautiful author. Okay. Um, and it it popped up when we were when we were emailing in in my head because it is entirely about pairs of opposites, mm. and it has to do with um, you know the the tenderness and also the aggression in uh, in romance mm. and in the sexual self but it also relates this kind of pair of opposites um, into all these other beautiful different realms of existence. And, and I think for me that like fiction is such an important um, rubric 
to use to come to understandings because it's so implicit and it's so open-ended and you're just invited into this world that you can kind of make your own meanings from as opposed to nonfiction or self-help books that are usually like lists and aphorisms that you're supposed to memorize and understand. So yeah, I always recommend like get into, get into some good literary fiction and let it, let it move you and, and see how other people's stories and other people's imaginations can open you up to things about yourself that you knew, but you didn't know that you knew. Sure. Sure. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I love it. I also have like a, a pretty decent reading list up on my website, which we can link to. And, um, oh, yeah. and, and then the podcast for my brother, we could also, I could also share the one where we actually talk about the kind of similarities between meditation and running. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, that's an interesting conversation and maybe a good resource for people, but yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I will put those in the show notes so that people can access those. Absolutely. So if people are wanting to connect with you, um, maybe through this pillars platform or in other ways, like what, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, well, yeah, the name of the app is pillars with a Y P Y L L A R S. Um, and that has its own, its own world and its own momentum. And my brother is the driver of that ship and, and very good captain. Mm -hmm. Um, so check that out. And then, yeah, in terms of the other stuff we've talked about, there's, yeah, the, a, a good contact is just through my website, which is jasonbowmanyoga.com. Awesome. Um, yeah. That's great. I will put that uh, in the notes as well. Jason, it's been so much fun visiting with you today. I've really enjoyed this conversation and uh, appreciate you giving your time to me and to the WellMind audience. It's, um, I'm very grateful. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been a treat. A big thank you to Jason for joining the WellMind community, and thank you for spending your time with me today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe through your podcast app so that you automatically get the latest episode. New episodes are released the first and third Monday of each month. Also, consider taking a moment to review the show if you found our discussion meaningful to you. Word of mouth is great to let people know about the WellMind podcast and spread the word. If you are interested in connecting with Jason or learning more about the Pillars app, please check out the links in the show notes. Many thanks to the staff here in the Bethany Lutheran College podcast studio. Seth and Greg are tremendous in providing technical support. I also want to welcome back Caleb Schilling. He finished his project and will be helping out with the podcast for the remainder of this academic year before he graduates. So welcome back and thanks, Caleb. Special thanks as always to Lauren McMacken for designing the logo and cover art for The Well Mind. And thank you for listening. And until next time, be well.